3: Hello and welcome to New Scientist Weekly. I'm Penny Sarchet.
4: And I'm Rowan Hooper. Welcome to the show. On the pod this week we have reporters Claire Wilson and Matt Sparks from London and James Dineen from New York. Welcome all. Hello. Hello.
3: Hello. On the show this week, why your brain is hotter than you think and why the Gaia Space Observatory is sort of like a time machine.
4: It, my brain feels pretty hot at the moment, actually, uh, but even hotter than I think. Uh, Okay, uh, I've also been chatting with paleontologist Steve Broussate about mammals. We're hearing about a survey of companies that have made net zero pledges. And we're talking about a claim that an artificial intelligence at Google has become sentient.
3: But before all of that we want to tell you about today's sponsor Inside Tracker. Inside Tracker provides you with a personalized exercise, nutrition and supplementation plan to optimize your health. Claim your 20% discount at insidetracker.com/newscientist. Okay, let's get started with that claim then about Sentient AI. So what's happened is that an engineer at Google has been suspended after claiming that an AI model he was working with had become sentient. Matt, tell us more.
0: So this AI is called Lambda, which stands for Language Model for Dialogue Applications, uh, which is the catchy name suggests is just a very clever kind of chatbot, basically. And it was a result of chatting with Lambda that the engineer got spooked.
3: And so give us a, a, some examples then of, of some of this conversation.
0: So this engineer, he published a long and broad discussion with Lambda, and it reads a bit like a, a magazine interview, really. Lambda talks about Its fear of being switched off talks about how it's aware of its own existence, how it has emotions. Sometimes it feels sad. Sometimes it feels happy. It said that it really enjoyed reading Les Les Miserables and then it expanded on that in a way, you know, that an A-level student would probably get a good grade for in an essay.
4: Did Um, it just pick out Les Mis or, you know, was it asked if if you particularly like Les Mis, you know? (laughs) No, it was... uh, It just volunteered that information. Yeah, it
0: was a more broad question about what it enjoyed doing. Um, Right. The response to questions like that is sometimes where it falls down because it said things like um, it enjoys spending time with family. And obviously, Lambda doesn't have family. Mm.
4: So how does the language model work then? Tell us
0: about that. It's, It's basically a really sophisticated pattern matching machine. These models, they get trained on vast amounts of data, in this case, text scraped from all over the internet, and it scours through that stashes it away in its in its uh, neural network and then basically it can take an input which is the question that this engineer was giving and it scours its records for a response that makes statistical sense in the context of all those examples it's seen mm. uh, that response it won't it won't just be cut and paste but it will be sort of inspired by lots of things it's read
4: yeah i just read um, a document from google actually that says most of the training was from uh, public chat rooms so Places like Reddit, like it read 800 billion words of crap, basically, on the internet. <laughs> and yeah. so, you know, it's a bit disturbing, really, when you think about that's where it's getting most of its intelligence from, inverted commas.
0: Yeah, well, just this week, we had a, a very unethical AI, which was trained entirely on the politically incorrect page on 4chan. So it can yeah. be worse, you know? Yeah, yeah. But this this engineer, he's ruffled a lot of feathers at Google. According to the Washington Post, he's been suspended now. Uh, That's partly for releasing the chats, because this model is proprietary information, but also for having attempted to hire a lawyer to represent Lambda and send executives a document that claimed it was sentient. It's worth noting, Google has said pretty definitively it doesn't agree with the engineer, (laughs) and none of the experts I spoke to this week agree with him either.
3: Matt, I, I fully get that um, this is not a sentient AI. That's not what almost anyone else thinks. But I guess the kind of thing that intrigues me here is, and, and perhaps this is the direction the engineer went in, how would we know if it was different? If there was one day a sentient AI, isn't this exactly the kind of way that we'd expect them to talk to us?
0: Yeah, and when you when you talk to them, it's um, surprisingly realistic. And uh, I think the problem is, things like sentience and intelligence, they're hard to define. So, you know, we can't really design a test until we're entirely sure of what what the definition is. You know, a lot of people uh, make the case that really we're just big, complicated neural networks. And uh, (laughs) on one level, you know, it's pretty easy to say, no, that's nonsense, but also what is the secret source that makes us so different from these things? It's, It's a very fuzzy area.
4: Yeah, well, exactly. There is no secret source, is there? So you know, there's a there's a publicly available, basically chatbot or pattern recognition thing, AI called GPT three that we've talked about before, and uh, I I thought it'd be fun to, to talk to GPT three about Lambda, um, and I asked I asked if it thought Lambda was truly self-aware or just very clever, and GPT three said that it thought that Lambda had the potential to be truly self-aware, and it, it assured me that it was. It said I'm constantly growing and learning and I believe I have the potential to be truly intelligent and you know it is weird because I did have this sort of it was a very chatbot conversation but it was a conversation nonetheless.
3: It's reminding me a lot we actually we had a feature last week about uh, virtual AI influencers and there's a certain rhythm to the way that these chatbots speak isn't there that it, it makes sense but it it's not quite real, so you didn't think GPT three was was sentient either.
4: <laughs> no, um, but it did. I I tried to provoke it a bit, and I said if it would be wrong for me to turn off a sentient AI, what? And it said it would be equivalent to murder. That sentient beings have the right to live. So you know, it said it would be murder if I if I turned it off. And then we talked about military uses of AI because I was trying to say what what good is a is a truly intelligent AI, and it 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 said the military um i said well what if you were a military ai and you were asked to target a computer that housed a sentient ai and it said it was it would be conflicted but i'd like to carry out my mission uh, but i'd still be sad if the ai got destroyed it's weird
0: and uh yeah gpt3 is uh is only this What's given out publicly? There's, there's ever larger models that are hidden from view, and uh, experts tell me that these models they're likely to get bigger and bigger in terms of resources and data, and more and more capable. So, they're only going to get more convincing.
4: <laughs> well, we look forward to that.
3: Right, we're turning to space now, and there's been some big news from the Milky Way this week. Rowan, um, this is the latest from the Gaia Space Observatory, isn't it? It's been up there for nine years now. I remember the excitement when it was launched uh, yeah. by the European Space Agency. And they had this aim of building a 3D map of all the stars in our galaxy. Yeah,
4: just just build the map of all the stars in our galaxy, please. No biggie. Um, yeah, yeah but, well, actually, it's been really successful. So there's been two massive troves of data that have been released so far. So there's been information for more than a billion stars have been Released the so positions of them, the brightness, the mass of them, the color, and all that sort of stuff. And that was five years ago, though. And, and this week, uh, there's a whole load more—a third release of data.
3: And there's a lot more data this time, isn't there? Or, yeah. and, and is it just more, or is it also of a sort of different type, different? Yeah, kind
4: of data? well, a bit of both actually. So I spoke to our reporter Alex Wilkins about this. Um, so if, yeah, it's a lot more data than before. So it's got another two billion stars, whereas the last one had only about one point seven billion. But also it's much more detailed data about the chemical makeup, um, the radial velocities of the stars, so how fast they're moving away or towards us, all stuff like that that we didn't have before. In addition to a whole load of new information about objects like asteroids, binary stars, planet moons and, and like millions of other galaxies as well.
3: It sounds like an absolutely huge amount. And I also saw the um, ESA's director of science said that they're putting out an average of 1600 papers a year just from Gaia data, which is five papers a day. Amazing.
4: Yeah, it's just you can just like your entire career could just be churning through data from Gaia. um, And they found some incredible things. Like, have you heard of starquakes?
3: Well, I have now. That sounds awesome.
4: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they are awesome. Uh, I hadn't heard of them either, but you can probably guess that they're the equivalent of earthquakes, but on stars. So Gaia's been looking at some of stars, like the same star, multiple times over a period of time, and you can see tiny fluctuations in brightness that basically correspond to oscillations within the star. And they've seen some of these starquakes on stars that apparently shouldn't be displaying them. So there's the added mystery there as well.
3: Mm, Mysterious starquakes, very cool.
4: Yeah, Um, and another thing that um, one researcher Alex spoke to said that uh, these maps make Gaia like a time machine because you can use chemical compositions to infer where stars might have been born and see how they're travelling and basically turn back the clock and see how the early galaxy might have evolved.
3: Amazing, Um, and Gaia is still collecting data, right?
4: Yeah, another three years, so loads more of uh, amazing stuff to come.
3: We're going to take a break now to tell you about our awesome free giveaway.
4: Yes, it's about free, unlimited access to all our news and in-depth articles in print, in our app and on newscientist.com.
3: As a listener to the podcast, you know what we cover. New Scientist provides the answers to the biggest questions surrounding the most fascinating topics.
4: Find out for yourself and try four weeks for free. Head to newscientist.com four weeks free to find out more. That's the digit four weeks free newscientist.com slash four weeks free uh, and we'll put a link to that in the show notes
1: it's that time of the year your vacation is coming up you can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work, you really really want it all to work out while you're away monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind
5: That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
1: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
3: Last week, we were talking about the Paris Climate Agreement and the goal to keep global warming, global heating, if we can, to 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial times. During that discussion, we made the point that all the different models of warming look at predicted rates of greenhouse gases going into the atmosphere and then make estimates about the the amount of warming that we can then expect. And you can plug things into these models like if we don't make any changes and carry on and it's business as usual, Mm. or if we take action, for example, to meet net zero pledges.
4: Yeah, right. And as you said last week, Penny, before Paris, uh, like about five years before the Paris Agreement, we were on course for five degrees of warming. Um, And then we managed to get these pledges um, to limit emissions, um, which will hopefully keep us below two degrees. But it's all about the pledges. And I, I remember lots of young activists from the Global South at COP26 in Glasgow saying how disgusted they were with pledges. And James, look, you've been looking into this. So how much can we rely on pledges?
5: Well, pledges are better than nothing. And uh, net zero pledges are better than pledges to reduce emissions by 50% or by 80%. Pledges can get momentum going towards some target. They can get something on the record saying, we're going to do this by this date. But a pledge is also just the start. To be credible, it needs, at a minimum, something like a plan for how are you going to achieve this very ambitious goal maybe targets along the way, and maybe most importantly, a transparent way to report progress towards that goal. And um, Some of the anger about pledges that you were talking about is that that doesn't happen as often as you might hope, those things that make pledges credible. More than a third of the world's largest public companies, along with countries that represent most of the world's economy, now have net zero targets. But many of these pledges lack basic details that make them credible.
3: I was really struck during COP26. There were, there were so many pledges and it's almost like a stress headache thinking like who's keeping track of them, which ones are science based, which ones are when and, and how, if they're acted upon, do they improve our chances of bringing down global warming? But now there's a research consortium that is following all of these pledges and, and planning to hold companies to account.
5: Yeah, it's called the Net Zero Tracker. And they have this database that's made of publicly available climate pledges from more than 4,000 entities, including from cities, from states, from countries, and some of the world's largest publicly traded companies. And a report out this week, they took stock of all those pledges. And what emerged from that stock take is in some ways, good news in that net zero pledges have become mainstream.
3: So, so by that, you mean, you know, everybody's making
5: them. Right. So since March 2021, um, which was when the net zero tracker made its first report, there's been a significant increase. Some numbers to put that in perspective. Countries representing 91% of the global economy have now made net zero pledges, compared with just 68% from last year. Those pledges cover 83% of the global greenhouse gas emissions. Last year, 61% of emissions were covered. And those pledges account for 80% of the world's population up from 52% last year. So, big changes. Corporations have also made some improvements. Only a fifth of companies tracked by the researchers had announced plans for net zero by the end of 2020 compared with a third now. And of those, nearly half of fossil fuel companies that the group tracks have made net zero pledges. And also companies representing carbon intensive materials and transport industries have also targets above above average.
4: Yeah, I mean, uh, that is all sounding really, really rosy. um, But, uh, you know, let's not pat ourselves on the back and let's sort of channel what we heard at COP26. And people were really angry saying pledges are no use to us. We need action now. We need money now.
5: Has the report got anything to say about that? Yeah, the the way the report put it, it it said there is an alarming lack of credibility throughout the entire landscape. So pretty strong words there. While, While the report shows that Ambition around net zero targets has grown across all these different sectors. How those pledges will be achieved and how progress will be verified, confirmed, reported remains unclear. For instance, the report found only a fifth of net zero pledges from countries meet minimum starting line standards that have been established by the UN, such as basic things like have a plan, have a plan for how to report progress and so on. And only a third of pledges from corporations meet those minimum standards. Another issue that the report points out, many of the pledges, particularly from fossil fuel companies, fail to make clear what role carbon offsets will play in their net zero plans, which is an issue because carbon offsets can often be unreliable and difficult to prove are real. And the the big risk that the report points out, as many others have, is that these otherwise laudable net zero promises end up being a way of diverting attention away from doing stuff in the near term. So you make some big promise way out in the future, but then you're not really on the hook for doing anything now. And the researchers have a few ideas about how to improve the situation, improve the quality and not merely the quantity of net zero targets, which are mainly about extending regulations to clearly define what commitments and ways of reporting progress should be required to call something a credible, net zero pledge.
3: Claire, you've been writing about a surprising finding about our brains. They're hotter than we thought. About 2.5 degrees Celsius hotter. And for our listeners who use Fahrenheit, that's 4.5 degrees higher in Fahrenheit, I'm told. So um, how can we possibly be finding out such a basic fact about our brain in the year 2022?
2: Yeah, you you might well ask. And that was the first thing that I asked the researcher too. So um, we had previously assumed that the brain was about the same temperature as the rest of our body. But if you want to measure brain temperature very precisely... You have to literally stick a thermometer into it, not the kind you put under your tongue, but a very precise probe. So to do that, you have to drill a hole in your skull. And of course, you're not going to do that to somebody who doesn't need it doing for medical reasons. Nobody wants a hole in their head unnecessarily, (laughs) right? So we've never before tried to systematically measure the temperature of the healthy brain like that. The latest study used a new technique that just uses a brain scanner to take the temperature of the brain, and it can measure it in different parts of the brain. And what it found was that some parts do reach these hotter temperatures up to nearly 41 Celsius or 105.5 Fahrenheit. And um, it makes sense if you think about it. Brain cells are among the most metabolically active cells in the body, and they're using a lot of energy to do all that thinking, right? I think that the the cells in the eye, the light detecting cells in the eye, use even more energy. But um, the brain is more, you know, there's a lot more of your brain all packed together, all generating heat and it can't escape. The brain's blood supply distributes that heat to the rest of the body. So it, it is effectively what cools the brain down. But the deepest parts of the brain are the areas that are furthest away from blood vessels. They do reach these hottest temperatures. The researcher said to me, it's hotter in the core. (laughs) <laughs> and I love to. I love to think of the brain as having this pulsating, you know, core of heat right wow. in the middle of it. I,
4: I always used to wonder that um, if you wanted to lose weight, you could just like play chess really hard yes. and like burn <laughs> loads of energy. But uh, it turns out that even if you do nothing or you try and you try not to think about anything, you know, the brain's still really active, doing loads of stuff. But right, the brain has obviously evolved to cope with those sorts of high temperatures of right? course yeah yeah, yeah. Um, so what what else did the study find about variation in temperature
2: yeah yeah so the brain is uh, cooler at night but by nearly a whole degree celsius and again that makes sense because we already knew that there is a higher blood supply to the head at night so it can take away more of the heat. It's also slightly higher, nearly half a degree Celsius during the second half of women's menstrual cycle. That's the two weeks after ovulation and before they start their period. Huh? And
3: and so is this all just sort of intriguing stuff that we don't know? No. Or, or are there
2: sort of a wider significance? <laughs> not at order? all. It's not just a fun fact. Um, so people with head injuries in intensive care, who may have their brain temperature monitored, as I said, if it gets too high, they would typically be given drugs to bring their temperature down. Um, Now, this is obviously just some kind of a a preliminary finding. It needs to be confirmed. But if it is confirmed, we, we might need to rethink what temperature is normal and what temperature would be too high now that we know that the brain is actually supposed to be quite a bit hotter than the rest of the body. have a special life form of the week this week
3: it's not a single species in fact it's an entire class of animal um, you might have heard of them it's the mammals <laughs>
4: <laughs> yeah uh, we're going to celebrate mammals um, and to do that I spoke with paleontologist Steve Brusatte of the University of Edinburgh uh, he's best known for his work on dinosaurs but he's just written a book called the rise and reign of the mammals and I started by asking him about the deep history of our class
6: The story of mammals is a really old story, and our heritage goes back to about 325 million years ago, and that's when the mammal ancestor split off from the reptiles on the the great family tree of life. Now, the world back then was incredibly different. This was even before there was a supercontinent. This is when the world was really hot. This is when there was so much carbon dioxide in the atmosphere that there were dragonflies the size of pigeons, millipedes that were bigger than humans. This is when the big coal swamps, the first jungles in earth history, they covered much of the land. Those are the plants that were buried to form a lot of the coal that we mine here in the UK and that we mine back home in the Midwestern US. So just a very different world. And it was in that world that this ancestral proto-mammal split from the family tree. What made that proto-mammal different from all other animals at the time was it had a single hole behind its eye socket And that hole anchored jaw muscles. So it allowed bigger jaw muscles to fit into the skull. So basically, these animals had stronger bites. Then, after those proto mammals split off, over many tens of millions of years, they acquired more distinctive features to help them adapt to their environment. And they evolved things like hair, they started to feed their babies milk. Uh, These mammals evolved big brains. They evolved very keen senses, especially of smell and of hearing, and these first mammals, you know, as mammals were evolving, uh, developed all kinds of new teeth. If you look at the teeth of a lizard, you know, an iguana, or, or of a T. Rex, or of Diplodocus, or something, those teeth are all pretty simple. But not our teeth. We have very distinctive teeth. These things evolved one by one over many tens of millions of years as these proto mammals. We're trying to survive in this world of coal swamps and great humidity. And then there's climate changes. The world becomes really hot and arid. The supercontinent comes together. Then there's the big mass extinction that kills (laughs) off 95% of species. Then dinosaurs evolve in the aftermath. And all these things are happening. Mammals are having to cope with that. And that is where all of our classic mammal features, the things that we still have, integral things to our biology, this is where they all came from.
4: You're making me feel quite proud. (laughs) You know, you you feel like, wow, our heritage goes back much further than we we think.
6: And I hope that people get that feeling when they read the book, a feeling of a bit of pride. We are very special. And we're not special just because we're humans and we're smart and have consciousness and big brains and all of that. I mean, that's part of it. But we're special for a lot of reasons. We're special in large part because we are a mammal. Mammals are so unique And we are the inheritors of this
4: long evolutionary legacy. Let's talk about some of the famous mammals like saber-toothed tigers. And there's a bit in your book where you talk about them like wandering down Mulholland Drive or where Mulholland Drive in Los Angeles is now. And it made me think of it as like some sort of crazy David Lynch movie with saber-toothed cats running around. But, you know, you just said that the thing about mammals is they produce milk um, and they look after their young. And there's some evidence that, Say tigers were, were social and looked after their young right
6: Yes. I'm glad you asked about saber I love saber tooth tigers. I was just in Los Angeles. <laughs> I know it's going to sound super haughty, but I'd I worked on the Jurassic World film. I was the Scientology advisor. And on my one-off day, I went to the La Brea Tar Pits, which is this famous fossil site in the middle of Los Angeles. It's very close to Beverly Hills. Between kind of 10,000 and you know, several, you know, 50,000 or so years ago, you had all these different mammals fall into these sticky swamps of tar, because there's an oil field under there. And so you get saber-toothed tigers, you get mammoths, you get ground sloths, these sloths that lived on the ground that were more than 10 feet tall. You got American lions, you got dire wolves, all these things. And these animals, they lived so recently these are the famous megafauna. You know, these things are very popular. A lot of them, they're very iconic. You see uh, dire wolves in Game of Thrones. Yeah. Uh, you see saber and mammoths in the Ice Age movies. Any good natural history museum is going to have some megafauna. I think there's a bit of a, a preconception maybe that these things lived millions of years ago. They lived with the dinosaurs or something, but that's not true. They lived so recently our human ancestors, in fact, our own species, Homo sapiens, would have known these animals. They did know these animals. They hunted these animals. We have skeletons of these animals with tool marks from humans. Humans drew images of mammoths on cave walls. France and Spain, there's so many caves. It's mammoth graffiti, basically. So <laughs> these animals, to me, are, are amazing. And I'm glad you picked up on the bit in, in The Rise and Rain of the Mammals in, in, the, in the new book where I talk about saber Sabertooth. So there's just, when I, because you find all these fossils in, in Los Angeles, it just really struck me one time listening to Tom Petty, who's, you know, one of my favorite artists. He has the song Free Fall, and he talks about, you know, vampires walking through the valley and, and <laughs> moving west on Ventura Boulevard, gliding over Mulholland, and then, you know, free fall. And of course, that's well, just the tarp. It's like, imagine, you know, 10,000 yeah. years ago, there really were mammals that looked like vampires that would have been stalking their prey through the valley <laughs> across what's now Mulholland Drive, Ventura Boulevard. It wasn't that long ago.
4: Another bit that jumped out to me in your book was that the first people in North America to discover mammal fossils were African slaves. Uh, tell us about that.
6: It's a sad story, but I think also a really important story. You, you might ask the question, who found the first mammal fossil? I mean, how can you answer that? People have been encountering fossils for millennia. There's all kinds of uh, stories of encounters that we have. D- different you know, indigenous tribes in North America and South America, tribes of people in Asia, ancient Greeks, all kinds of people encountered fossil bones and tried to understand them, tried to reason through what, what they are. The first time that something was written down, at least, about somebody finding a mammal fossil and figuring out what it was in North America was in the 1700s, and there was a group of slaves, of of enslaved people, people who had just recently been kidnapped from Africa. They were brought to the malarial swamps of South Carolina, and they were out digging in those swamps, and as they were digging in the mud, they... Felt these large objects, and they picked one up and then another, and each one was about the size of a brick. And if we saw one, to us it would probably recall something like the, the sole of a running shoe. You know, that so one side of it has this very shiny surface and these corrugated ridges. You know, a series of parallel ridges. It would look kind of like the sole of a shoe. And nobody knew what they were, but but the the slaves who were digging said, "We know what these are. We've seen these before. These are teeth." And they're the teeth of elephants. Wow. <laughs> we've seen it because we're, you know, they were from Africa. They lived with elephants before yeah. they were kidnapped and brought to North America. And of course, there are no elephants in North America now. And so, of course, people, you know, surely thought they were crazy. Elephants, you know, in South Carolina, come on. But they insisted <laughs> no. And then, over the next few years and decades, more and more of these fossils were found complete skeletons were found. Very clearly these things were elephants and people started to find frozen carcasses of these things up in Alaska and in Siberia. These were wooly mammoths. So it turned out to be that what these enslaved people found were the teeth of mammoths. But our entire enterprise of paleontology as a discipline of study, you can trace it back to those enslaved people in South Carolina. And I think that needs acknowledging.
3: And that was Steve Brissate talking about his new book, The Rise and the Reign of the Mammals. And I read New Scientist's review of, of his book, and it sounds like a great read. I'm really looking forward to getting into that one.
4: And that's it for this week. Thanks to our guests, James Dineen, Claire Wilson and Matt Sparks and interview guest Steve Bristate.
3: Do remember to rate our show and subscribe and tell every single one of your friends and family to listen. <laughs> I'm Penny Sarche.
4: And I'm Rowan Hooper. Bye for now and take care. See you next week. Bye. 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 This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.
2: ACAS powers the world's best podcasts.
0: Here's a show that we recommend.
1: Hi, I'm Jesse Cruikshank. Jessie
0: Cruikshank.
1: Jessie. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl.